Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. Welcome to a very special episode of Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and today, finally, I am not alone. Joining me for this episode is Chris Franklin, the other half of the Supermates podcast. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good, Ryan. How are you? I am excellent. Chris and I today are going to be covering Justice League of America issues 219 and 220. Uh, these are very special episodes that completely screw with the origin of Black Canary. <laughs> yes, you, they do. Would you say that's an accurate description, Chris? Oh, I'd say that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so there are there are two reasons that I wanted to cover this one now. First is, according to the Super DC calendar that came out in 1976, according to that calendar... Black Canary was born on April 10th. So my plan, and we're recording this a few days in advance, is to push this episode out on either April 10th or April 11th to celebrate her birthday um, with some, uh. some episodes that, in a way, talk about the birth of Black Canary. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and as soon as I figured out that I wanted to be covering these issues, I knew that I had to get you, Chris, on as my guest, because since I've started this podcast, every chance, every time I mention Larry Lance, you, <laughs> you come back in the comments section with, Dinah has weird feelings about the guy who's actually her father. <laughs> so your response every time, no matter what the context is. I was like, okay, clearly Chris isn't going to let this go until we actually have it out and talk about it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, the, to say that this uh, made an impression on me is uh, is <laughs> is an understatement as well. So, for the for listeners who aren't familiar with these issues, you will find out what we're talking about in short order. Um, but for those of you who who are in the know and if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are in the know. I, I keep trying to work my way around the crazy, incestuous conundrum of this retcon. I keep <laughs> trying to figure out a way that makes it work. And either A, I can't talk myself out of it, or B, it opens up even crazier plot holes and plot problems. So, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think there's any other way of of discussing this issue without actually getting into the nitty gritty of it. So, Chris, do you want to tell our listeners about Justice League of America two nineteen? I will do that. Justice League of America number two nineteen was cover dated October nineteen eighty three, and that cover was by George Perez. And that the cover shows Johnny Thunder's Thunderbolt frying these JLA members: Flash, Zatanna. Green Lantern, Elongated Man, and Firestorm. They're in the satellite headquarters, and a stunned Black Canary and Red Tornado 
are arriving from the transporter tube with the JSA members, Flash, of course, Jay Garrick, Power Girl, Iron Man, Starman, and the Huntress. The title of the story is Crisis in the Thunderbolt Dimension, Part 1. Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway were the writers. Chuck Patton and Romeo Tangal were the artists. John Costanza was the letterer. Gene D'Angelo, the colorist. And Lynn Wein, editor. On the world we know as Earth-1, the flashes of two worlds take a few seconds to stop a terrorist attack on their way to the transporter tube that will take them to the Justice League satellite and the annual Justice League Justice Society get-together. As they playfully argue over which of their Earths should be really designated as Earth-1, that world's Flash, Barry Allen, is attacked by Pink Lightning, which the Earth-2 speedster Jay Garrick recognizes as his ally, Johnny Thunder's Thunderbolt. After a quick assault, the T-Bolt disappears, with Jay suffering minor injuries, but Barry on the brink of death. Meanwhile, 22,300 miles above Earth-1, other members of the JLA and JSA are mingling at the aforementioned shindig. Just as Firestorm is about to get up the nerve to rekindle his flirtations with Power Girl, the T-Bolt attacks again. He manages to take out the nuclear man and fellow JLAers Green Lantern, Satana, and the Elongated Man, as well as the transmatter device that the teams use to bridge their dimensions. Surprisingly, Black Canary manages to stop the T-Bolt with her sonic canary cry. Only she and the other, na other heroes native to Earth-2, including the JSA and the Red Tornado, remain relatively unharmed. The rest of the JLA is seriously injured. Jay arrives with the similarly endangered Barry, and soon the JLA med lab is full of injured heroes, barely hanging on to life. The remaining heroes regroup and wonder how their former ally could turn against them and how their teammate, the master of the T-Bolt, Johnny Thunder, was mixed up in all of this. Thoughts of migrating to Earth-1 caused Black Canary to recall how one of the JLA-JSA team-ups resulted in the death of her husband, Larry Lance, the acquisition of her canary cry, and her abandonment of her native world. The heroes check in on the other League members, all felled by the T-Bolt. They then learn some of their old foes have attacked landmarks on Earth-1 below. The Fiddler and Kronos seized the Pyramid of the Sun in Mexico. The Icicle and Dr. Alchemy attacked the Great Pyramid in Egypt. And the Wizard and Felix Faust assault Stonehenge in England. The heroes split off to meet the, these threats, leaving Black Canary to coordinate matters at the satellite. When the others leave, she finds her old ally Starman has stayed behind, and he suggests tracking the T-Bolt back to his source the Thunderbolt Dimension. A quick trip with his cosmic rod delivers the two heroes to this plane of existence that defies all logic. What they find is even more startling. The evil Johnny Thunder of Earth-1, in command of the Thunderbolt, who makes quick work of them. When they come to, they realize Johnny is not alone in this dimension. Floating in a crystal coffin are two bodies that defy even more logic than the dimension itself. The seemingly inert forms of Black Canary's dead husband, Larry Lance, and an exact doppelganger of the canary herself. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> that is a cliffhanger. That is indeed. That was a head scratcher back in 1983. <laughs> I imagine, yeah. I imagine getting to that last page and having to wait a month would be would be quite a chore. Yeah, that was... Uh, I mean, I bought this comic off the stands, both of these. and In fact, my copy of 219 is just shredded, so... Uh, thanks to our pal Rob Kelly for coming in at a pinch with that one. So 
Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it was quite a, I mean, I had no idea. Of course I was what, nine, maybe eight or nine when it came out, but yeah, I had no idea where they were going with this. And, uh, you know, if had I known where they were going with this, <laughs> I may not have been quite as excited. <laughs> I, I don't have any other notes about the cover. It is great. Um, I think you mentioned kind of in your notes that George Perez really makes Thunderbolt look menacing and dangerous. Yes. I don't think anybody else has ever made me feel that way about the Thunderbolt. Right. I mean, he looks, he looks scary. I mean, he's a pink lightning bolt, you know, a humanoid pink lightning bolt, but he looks scary. I mean, all the shadows yeah. and I mean, the the coloring helps, but all the shading that Perez does, all the blacks, the, the spotted blacks on the leaguers. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really looks like he's just lighting them up and uh, it's, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's an exciting cover. I mean, it, it, you know, it made me buy it. And I mean, it's, it's not got a lot of big heavy hitters. There's no, of course, Batman had quit by now, but there's no Superman, Wonder Woman, uh, flashes there in Green Lantern, but you know, it's, uh, the, the big guns aren't on the cover, but I, you know, bought it right off the stands. It's, 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 uh, you know, it's Perez. So, you know, or Perez, how you're supposed to pronounce it, but speaking of covers, I was thinking about the the classic cover to the Flash issue one twenty three, which is the yes. the famous the Flash of Two Worlds cover, um, because page two of this issue is a direct homage to that. With you've got Jay Garrick and Barry Allen coming after uh, this machine gun toting terrorist. Yeah, and I have seen so many covers that lift or pay homage to that cover, and I don't think I have ever seen a bad one. Or no. one that wasn't interesting or striking. And that says something. I, I mean, it's that makes me think that, I mean, that cover, if it's not the greatest cover of all time, it definitely warrants consideration because of how many, how many covers it has inspired. And they're all great. Yeah, yeah. well, that's the genius of Carmine Infantino. He right. was he was one of the best. You can say what you want about his art style as he grew older especially and his style became very loose and more abstract and he didn't have inkers reining him in as much but he was probably one of the best designers that ever worked in comics yeah and i I, yeah and i don't think it's fair to judge him by his work when he was declining i mean i think you probably look at him as his hating carmine infantino one of the creators of black canary i have to say also um, right, right, yeah, right. Yeah. Like the, those first, those early issues of the Flash comics when he when they reinvented Barry Allen as the Flash. I mean, every issue of that series, they were introducing a new villain or a new concept, be it you know Kid Flash or the Treadmill or Elongated Man. I mean, mm-hmm. those go. Uh, they're not as good, but it's reminiscent of what would later become Stanley and Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four, which introduced a new concept every issue. That was right. still being used today. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, look at it now. It's the basis of a TV show. I mean, so, I mean, and, and a lot of the concepts that are on the Flash TV show yep. are, they're reimagined, but they're the concepts that Infantino and right. John Broom and those guys and, and Julia Schwartz came up with. So, yeah, right. you're good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, that was a good, uh, I really like that. I, I just like Chuck Patton. Yeah. Um, I, I really, I mean, he was a breath of fresh air on that book because you had Perez did, he wasn't quite the, I mean, he was the regular artist, but he had, there were a lot of fill-ins. Right. Uh, when he, he took over. Like the late 190s and like up to 200. Right. And Dick Dillon 
had passed on and he actually finished the uh the JLA JSA crossover with the new gods right. and uh he came in as as the artist but he was doing at one time he was doing JLA and New Teen Titans and Avengers still at Marvel at the same time. <laughs> now, how in the world he did that? You know, that's just I, being greedy. That's, yeah, exactly. that's that's selfishness. <laughs> well, you know, if you look as his uh, his style becomes a lot as he dropped first Avengers and then JLA, his style kind of evolved into the Perez we know more now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's changed even since then, but it, he became more the this hyper super detailed her as we know now but uh you know he had made such an impression on the jla and then with 200 he left and not to again i feel like we're beating up on the old guard but don hex later work at dc just was not his best stuff i mean he did great stuff at marvel with iron man and 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 those characters but his jla not exactly super exciting especially after perez yeah and Uh, i and that's tough because I love the stories in Don Hex issues. Um, yeah. I love that era of the book, but yeah, his art was just not, it could have, I, I, I would have rather seen somebody like Chuck Patton on the book right, right after that, if he could have taken over a year earlier. Right. I mean, if they had went straight from Perez to Patton, I think that justice league might've had enough momentum that you wouldn't have, they wouldn't have had to felt like they had to, you know, change the status quo and and break the team up and everything because it would have been a straight, you know, run of of uh, of hotness basically. Yeah. Because Patton really he had he had some qualities of Perez, but he had kind of that DC house style that was a little bit of Dick Giordano, but mostly Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, they, there was kind of a synthesis there. I mean, uh, and I was really excited, uh, for him to be drawing JLA. And even, I think he's one reason why I didn't just completely flip out when the Detroit league came in because I liked his art style. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think him leaving the book when he did really hurt that team too. I mean, nothing against Luke McDonald, but, uh, that was a different style and the book just didn't look as slick and, and you know, for lack of a better term, pretty. I mean, it just it didn't it uh, it just didn't look as polished under Luke McDonald. I think that I think that hurt the book. Uh, I, I don't know why DC didn't chain Patton to a desk because. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I really don't understand why he didn't like. Uh, he would have been a good choice to replace Perez on on the Titans. I know he did some fill in stuff. Yeah. But uh, I think he would have been a good go-to guy for. I really don't know what happened. I know he went to animation, but beyond that, I don't. Uh, you know, he didn't do a whole lot of comic work after the mid '80s. It seems so. It's a shame. Looking at page four, there is a panel, and this is to Marv Wolfman and everyone else who thought the multiple the the DC multiverse was too complicated. We get one panel with Jay Garrick explaining it and two different Earths that sums it up pretty clearly. I think anybody in the world could understand that. (laughs) And then one issue later, because of Marv Wolfman, this is completely insane to have these different universes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this this comic right here, this one panel says, oh, well, Crisis wasn't necessary. It really wasn't. It's a great story. It's a great epic adventure. As a in and of itself, it's fantastic. But the 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 need for it wasn't really there. But then, 
it, you're right. By the, the end the of result, the next issue. <laughs> by the end of this next year, everything needed to be blown <laughs> apart and started over again. Like, okay, we need to kill all of these characters and reset. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good point, yeah. Uh, you know, and I would bet money that Roy Thomas uh, wrote the parts where Jay and Barry are, argue over which Earth should be Earth 1. That sounds oh, like yeah. a Roy Thomas oh, yeah. uh, thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, once we get once we get up to the satellites, I love scenes like this. I love it when heroes from different groups get together and it's not a smackdown. It's just them letting their hair down and kind of talking we get Black Canary telling a funny story to Huntress and Power Girl giving some innuendo. Mm-hmm. Um, she's holding her hands a certain distance apart and saying, oh, it's about this long and as wide around as a marking pen. And Power Girl replies, tell Oliver I'm impressed, Dinah. I didn't think you could make an arrow that size. Never mind that it would fly. Yeah, perfect, perfect, wonderful. Right. <laughs> That's the uh, writers being cheeky in 1983 when comics were still meant for kids. <laughs> yeah. Um, this this era of All-Star, the, the JSA characters in All-Star Squadron, I'm not as boned up on. I'm not as fluent in this era. I know some of their earlier stuff and some of the later stuff. Was the Power Girl Firestorm romance ever discussed in that book? Did that come up? Well, um, you know, by that point, the Power Girl didn't have a regular feature anywhere where All-Star Squadron was set in the past. Mm. You know, she mostly appeared in these these uh, JLA, JSA team-ups, and she was one that almost always appeared because she was pretty popular, you yeah. know, from the, the 70s run. Uh, but every year, uh, of course, Conway wrote Justice League for like t- almost 10 years, I think. And uh, he cre- co-created both the characters. Yeah. Uh, so he uh, he he definitely had. There was a progression. I think in the 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 year before this, in the uh, uh, the they had the crossover with the All Star Squadron. So you had the modern JSA and the All Star Squadron of the past meeting the Justice League, and uh, their flirtations kind of. At the, I think the end of that, which was drawn by Don Heck, the end of that last uh, issue was like a five part. Uh, the series that one, uh, they had uh, you know Firestorm and and uh, had his arms around Power Girl as they were looking out the satellite window, and that's I think that's where they left it, and this is where we pick up where he's she's been giving him the cold shoulder, and you know then Our Man tells him, well you know on Earth too we have to you know chase after women, you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they like to be pursued, you know, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny, but. Uh, you know, one thing you brought up, the, the fact that these characters are just mingling together, this is the difference between classic Silver Age slash Bronze Age DC and Marvel. They don't meet and beat the crud out of each other first. They, you know, they right. meet and drink soda together. <laughs> right. I think the only time that ever happens is like at a wedding. One thing that always kind of, you know, how are, you know, it's a it's Pink Lightning. You know, how many of these JLA JSA crossovers has Johnny Thunder been involved with? If I if I see Pink Lightning, I'm going to say, "Hey, that's Johnny Thunder's Thunderbolt." Yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty. That that should be a pretty easy. I mean, unless it's w- that willful ignorance, like they have such disdain for Johnny Thunder and how useless he is <laughs> that even when they're about to get killed by him, they're like, "Yeah, I'd, I've never seen this guy before in my life." You know, you thought you would think over the years that Doctor Fate or the Spectre would figure out a way to. Basically, free uh, the Thunderbolt from Johnny's 
thrall more or less, and we could use you, but uh, we got to get rid of that dork in the bow tie. You know? <laughs> well, the story shows how powerful the Thunderbolt is, and it's been sadly shackled to this doofus of a character. Yes. <laughs> And they refer to it as it. I mean, it's not like (laughs) these characters helped them for, you know, going on 40 years at this point, uh, over 40 years at this point, and they still call it an it more than a he. And it's, I mean, I know he's like a genie or whatever, but it's like he's, you know, it's kind of weird how they just treat him as a, I know he's not quite, I know he's not human, but, you know, sub- Subsentient being, you know, it's. I bet, it, I bet that's actually Johnny Thunder downplaying him and trash talking him when he's not around. Like when Johnny <laughs> Thunder was just at like the Justice Society mansion, just talking to the others. It's like, no, yeah, don't he? He, he gets uncomfortable when you treat him like he's a real person. Just always, just <laughs> ignore him. Act like he's not there. Call him it. That's he, he's much more comfortable that way. And it's all because Johnny Thunder feels self conscious. Like they like the genie more than him. <laughs> That's right. Good, good point. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the the recap that Dinah kind of flashes back and recalls how the the events of Justice League of America issue seventy four and seventy five, basically mm-hmm. how her husband Larry was killed and how she came back to Earth One. Yeah. What I don't think ever gets mentioned enough is how intricately involved Green Arrow was in the death of Larry Lance. Yeah, good point. Because like, when I he, first he, read that, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry he, go ahead. Well, no, yeah, I mean, he fired the arrow that the the stickum shaft. Which how can we not say that word every <laughs> every episode? He fired the stickum shaft that covered Dinah with goo and froze her in place. And, oh wow! And yeah. as a result, Larry Lance died, like saving her. Now, mm-hmm. of course. Ollie wasn't in his right mind. Of course, he was being possessed by Aquarius. But I really have a tough time believing that, like, within a week, she would be fawning all over that guy who did fire the arrow that led to her husband's death, whether intentionally or not. Yeah. It, I mean, I, I think Freud and some classical, uh, like, analysts would have some thoughts about green arrows role in replacing Larry. Yeah. By killing him with a shaft too. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> <Stick 'em shaft. laughs> kinda <laughs> stick him shaft. Um, yeah, you know, and, and, you know, Denny O'Neill is, 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 uh, is a smart guy. I mean, we know he is. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and he, he was, he, you know, he, he could lay, even at that stage, he was layering in some things like that into his, uh, into his comics. So, you know, there might be more to that, if you asked him now, he'd probably say, "Oh, I don't know. I don't remember." You know, he's. But uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if there wasn't a little bit of that because you know he he's the one that wrote the story where where Larry dies, and he's also the one that that started the romance between Dinah and Ollie. So uh, that seems and like it, he definitely had the agenda of getting them together. Yeah, and, and you know, it's kind of funny because I, I'm I'm the same way with you. I had I had read the story where black canary actually joins, I had that in a, like a, a DC digest. Uh, but I hadn't, I never read the, the actual story where Larry gets killed. I'd only seen it in flashbacks like this until they came out with those, uh, crisis on multiple earth trade paperbacks a few years back. And when I read it, I'm like, Holy cow, green arrow was like, the, you know, I mean, I know they show it here, but it's when you actually see him fire the arrow and everything, it's, it's, I mean, it really is like telegraphing the fact that, 
you know, their, their destinies are intertwined, you know? And and so it really did jump out at me, but yeah, there's not enough really made of that, honestly. So I I have a feeling somebody would have mentioned it, but yeah, exactly. Um, So we've, so obviously between those two men in Dinah's life, um, actually the, the, the couple that I, I still love to this day that I, I wish there was more done with is Black Canary and Starman. And I really like that at the end of this issue, it's Starman that takes her to the Thunderbolt dimension and has this connection with her. And this was yeah. long before what James Robinson and Mark Wade would eventually do with their relationship. Right, right. <laughs> and I and I've got to say I I like that aspect. I like that retcon of how they developed that that Dinah and Starman had this affair. Um, yeah. But even even here, you see that they have this connection, which was really only only based on really just their team ups in the Brave and the Bold sixty one and sixty two. I mean, right, just two issues. Yeah, and because it's... they were like in the Golden Age, they were never on the JSA at the same time. No, like, I don't. I don't think they appeared together until the first or second Justice League and Justice Society crossover, like in JLA. 29 and 30 i think is that some, those issues sound right right i think so i think starman came back in the it was the crisis on earth 3 one yeah yeah, yeah. with the, the the crime syndicate yeah okay. uh yeah in fact starman had been he was he had been retired from dc they didn't publish him in the in adventure comics even by the time that uh dinah first appeared in flash yeah uh so he was he was long gone i mean by several years i think maybe two or three yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that Brave and the Bold two-parter, and I'm pretty sure those were just almost, you almost got the impression that Julius Schwartz was just kind of, him and Gardner Fox were just like drawing names out of a hat. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, hey, it's you like oh, Dr. Things? Fate and Our Man, uh, Black Canary and Star Man, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I like it. I like that. I like that team up. I like that they, they seem to have nothing in common. Um, mm-hmm. it's It's sort of like... It, it's like that DCCP issue of 30 with uh, Black Canary and Superman. Yeah. Like you've got this this very powerful character in a flamboyant, you know, red costume who's, you know, got the ability to fly and go out into the stars. And he's partnered with a girl who seems to just be a physical combatant. Um, but yeah. somehow that that strong difference in their approaches I like that. I think that brings out a little that they they're foils. They're better for each other because they accentuate how they're different. And I think that's a problem with black canary and green arrow is that they are too close to being matched. They don't, they both kind of overshadow each other when they're together. Whereas black canary and somebody much more colorful, much more powerful. I think that enhances it almost in the same way. And I'm not comparing her to Batman, but in the same way that Batman and Superman bring out the best in each other because they're so different. Right. And I was going to say, you know, a few times in the seventies, they had Superman team with Batgirl. And uh, apparently that was pretty popular because there's like two different issues of Superman where they did that. And uh, that was a nice combo. I mean, it was kind of unusual. You didn't have, Batman in the way of their team up, right? And uh, it kind of had that same dynamic. So it's it's uh, and they when they teamed Batman with Supergirl, it worked the same way. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I really I like that team, and you know their colors work well together too, just on a visual level. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I you know I ended up uh, 
liking what the what Robinson did, even though at the time I'm like, holy cow, I can't believe he went there. <laughs> but so that uh, issue that so the the reveal that Dinah and Ted Knight had an affair that was revealed in Starman Annual Number Two, I believe. And I think so. And that the Pulp Annual one, yeah, yeah, I think yeah so. the Pulp Annual. Yeah. And I just went back and looked at it, and now I did not get it at the time, but I looked back and found the release date for that. That was released on my birthday. Um, oh, really? That would have been my 16th birthday, I think. So I could have gotten my license and driven to the comic store and picked up that issue. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> instead, I got my license, picked up some friends, and we went you know, doing things that I'm not going to record. <laughs> well, your your comic screw up a little bit just then too. Yeah. <laughs> Which, but if you uh, unfortunately, if you follow this story through to its natural con- conclusion in the next issue, mm-hmm. Ted, their relationship adds a whole nother wrinkle. Oh yeah, to, <laughs> to what's going on because there's going to be some identity uh, crisis with. Uh, well, of course, though Ted knows what's going on. Because the JSA know what's going on. We will, I'm jumping ahead. I'm well, sorry. Okay. Well, that's I'm I'm good with that. Uh, was there were there any other big notes that you had for issue two nineteen? Uh, just uh, when they get to the end, you know, they got the evil Johnny Thunder, um, and uh, the he actually came from the the I think it was the third JLA JSA team up in issues thirty seven and thirty eight. That's where. He got control of the Thunderbolt and created the what was it the Lawless League of America? It was yeah. it was another. It's like I think they had such such success with the crime syndicate they basically wanted to rip themselves off, mm-hmm. <laughs> so they came up with another evil Justice League the the very next year, which may have been a bit too much. But uh, so he came back in a snazzy new uh, you know flashier costume, but he had appeared before so. But other than that, in that cliffhanger, I you know it's um, that's pretty much uh, all I got on this one. All right, well we're gonna take a quick break, uh, play a promo, maybe some music, and we'll be back in a minute with a review of Justice League of America issue two twenty. I am vengeance. I am the night. I am back. You need to take the trash out. Hey, I'm trying to make a trailer for a podcast. Oh, you mean Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Why, yes, that is what I mean. The show where you and I discuss all things geeky. Comics, TV, movies, books, you name it. Well, are you going to tell them that you can find the show at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com? Well, I think you kind of already did. And that new shows will be posted bi-weekly every two weeks? I was, but you just kind of did that too. Well, see, now you can go take out the trash. Great. So join us, Cindy. And Chris. Franklin. For the Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. Trunk is packed. 
monkey's back Justice League of America number 220 is cover dated November 1983. The story, titled The Doppelganger Gambit, notice that is it's not part two. It doesn't contain, I just noticed that for the first time. Ah. It's not Crisis in the Thunderbolt Dimension part two. You're right. Interesting deviation. Okay. Uh, the story, titled The Doppelganger Gambit, is written by Roy Thomas with pencil art by Chuck Patton and inks by Romeo Tangal and Pablo Marcus. It was lettered by David Cody Weiss, colored by Gene D'Angelo, edited by Len Wein, and Marv Wolfman gets a shout-out for contributing the big idea for the story. George Perez drew the cover, which features Black Canary and several members of the Justice Society gazing in shock and horror at a second Black Canary and her late husband, Larry Lance, in a crystal casket held by the Thunderbolt. Johnny Thunder of Earth-1 sits in something that looks like Metron's Mobius chair and shouts... Come closer, Justice Society, and learn the true origin of the Black Canary. The Earth 2 heroes of the Justice Society set out to hunt down the crime champions when they're unexpectedly joined by Sargon the Sorcerer, just because Roy Thomas felt like writing another forgotten hero from the Golden Age. In the Thunderbolt dimension, the evil Johnny Thunder of Earth-1 has taken control of the Thunderbolt and captured Black Canary, Starman, and the Johnny of Earth-2. Dinah is hardly aware of her captor, She's much more interested in the glass-enclosed or the crystal-enclosed couple's casket containing the body of her late husband, Larry Lance, and an identical double of herself. The Thunderbolt recaps some classic Golden Age stories explaining how he fought crime with the Earth-2 Johnny Thunder and how they partnered with Black Canary for a time. Then, Roy Thomas takes the opportunity to weave a few different events together in a retcon that explains why Johnny Thunder's stories in Flash comics stopped. Over time... Earth-2 Johnny became embittered by the loss of the Thunderbolt, by how Black Canary took his spot with the JSA, and how Dinah rejected his love in favor of somebody like Larry Lance. After the JSA disbanded, Dinah discovered she was pregnant, and she and Larry had a daughter also named Dinah. Of course, happy families aren't permissible in serial adventure fiction, so before long, the Lance family was visited by the Wizard, calling himself the greatest supercriminal in the history of the planet. We can debate that. <laughs> Wizard cast a spell on baby Dinah so that every time the child uttered a sound, she would create a cataclysmic sonic attack. In desperation, Dinah and Larry went to Johnny Thunder for help. The Thunderbolt agrees to spirit the baby away to the Thunderbolt dimension, where her uncontrollable powers wouldn't cause destruction. The trade-off, however, is that adult Dinah and Larry would never see their daughter again. The child Dinah grew while sleeping in what Thunderbolt describes as a magical kind of suspended animation, like a female Rip Van Winkle, he says. And Thunderbolt reveals that after he took their child away, he used his power to make Dinah, Larry, and Johnny all forget the incident ever happened. Instead, he convinced the couple that their daughter died because it was easier. And we can talk about that again, too. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, we have some battles taking place on Earth-1. In Mexico, Kronos and the Fiddler fight Jay Garrick and Our Man in the, at the ancient Pyramid of the Sun. Across the globe, Dr. Alchemy and the Ice Skull fight the Huntress and Red Tornado at the Great Pyramids of Egypt. And the Wizard and Felix Faust challenge Power Girl and Sargon at Stonehenge. In every skirmish, the crime champions emerge victorious. 
Back in the Thunderbolt dimension, though, the native energy sprites help free the good Johnny Thunder. Just before Evil Johnny orders the Thunderbolt to kill Canary and Starman, Good Johnny says the magic words, Say you, breaking the Evil Johnny's control. Good Johnny knocks out his evil double with one right hook, and the Thunderbolt flies off to rescue the other heroes. Coming out of their comas, the Barry Allen Flash and Elongated Man surprise Kronos and the Fiddler. In Egypt, Green Lantern and Firestorm take out the Ice Cult, leaving Huntress and Red Tornado to tackle Dr. Alchemy. At Stonehenge, Zatanna arrives to help Sargon and Power Girl smack down Felix Faust and the Wizard. In the Thunderbolt dimension, Evil Johnny is captured and his scheme is foiled. Overwhelmed with emotions, Dinah looks at the duplicate body she sees sleeping in the casket and asks, Is that my daughter over there? A daughter I'd forgotten? Or is the answer even stranger than that? I want to break in right now and say that no one could have asked for the answer to be any stranger than it already is. <laughs> but that wasn't enough for Roy Thomas and Marv Wolfman. So, Superman and the Spectre arrive to add even more layers of wackiness onto this retcon. Superman reveals that when he first brought Dinah to Earth-1 after Larry's death back in Justice League issue 74, she immediately felt sick, and they discovered that her body was doused with radiation when Aquarius killed Larry. Enough radiation to kill her, too. As Dinah was dying, she asked to see her daughter's grave one last time. Superman and the Thunderbolt brought her to the Thunderbolt dimension where baby Dinah grew into a beautiful young woman who looked just like her mother. At Dinah's encouragement, Superman and Thunderbolt concoct a plot to transfer Dinah's essence and most of her memories into the body of her daughter. They left new Dinah with the memory of her dead husband, who was biologically her dead father, but removed any memory of having a daughter, which would actually be herself. This explained why Black Canary developed sonic powers when she came to Earth-1 and I put air quotes around the word explained, because to say any of this story makes sense is absurd. After a brief crying jag that nobody could blame her for, Black Canary bids farewell to the bodies of her mother, self, and father, husband. Then she has Superman and the others take her back to Earth-1, asking them one favor. Let me, she says, be the one to explain all of this to Ollie. And that concludes the ridiculous true origin of Black Canary and Justice League of America issue 220. <laughs> so, wow. Chris, you, you've been asking for this for weeks now in the comments section. Any <laughs> any thoughts about this issue jump out at you? Oh, <laughs> just a few. <laughs> oh, man, you know, just in general. I mean, we'll, we'll get into the breakdown. But, you know, just in general, besides the obvious... You know, you brought up how Green Arrow was so instrumental in Larry's death and Black Canary deciding to come to Earth-1 as printed in, in those Justice League 74 and those issues. Mm -hmm. But he also inadvertently brought about the death of her mother because she was trying to free Larry. Yeah, or she, was, she was stuck to the ground and Larry was yeah. trying to save her, so... She wouldn't have got a, a body full of Aquarius radiation if she hadn't had the stickum shaft <laughs> explode all over her. So <laughs> Oliver Queens should be wanted for double manslaughter, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah. That's... <laughs> and that's actually the a big takeaway from this issue that I 
I actually, I didn't, I, it sort of went over my head until I was rereading these issues for this, uh, for this review, was that this, this retcon of how the, the adult, di- the Dinah Senior, the mother, actually got poisoned from the Aquarius radiation and that she was dying anyway, that really takes away from Larry Lance's heroic sacrifice. Yes. And that was a big thing about his character. That was the the best thing that character ever did was die nobly and heroically to save her. Right. And now it's like, well, he died to save her for a couple minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's just that I that really hurts what was great about Larry. Right. Yeah, it takes Yeah, she spent her entire golden age career, which wasn't very long, but I mean, every story saving him and he saved her, you know, he made the ultimate sacrifice and saved her. But because of this retcon, nah, (laughs) he bought her, he bought her, like you said, just a few minutes at the most. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. So you want to break this down until we get to the, uh, the, uh, lovely bit at the end. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's go through this a little bit at a time and digest this. I think if a modern or a contemporary writer were approaching this story, they wouldn't have even bothered with a second Johnny Thunder. Um, they wouldn't have even approached that the, the Johnny Thunder of Earth 1 was evil. They would have just made Earth 2 Johnny Thunder like vengeful and spiteful that he was rejected um, right. by Dinah. And it, this, this would have, he just would have been, become a darker, more malevolent character because the JSA spurned him for for Black Canary, and even because the genie was more powerful. Um, that was kind of the vibe I got from, from this story. If this would, if this had been told by a contemporary writer for a contemporary audience, they, they, would, have just, they would have just made Johnny uh, an evil asshole. Right, and from then on, he would have been that way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that's a good point. Kind of like, uh, I mean, I know it was, you know, 20 years earlier, but kind of like what uh, Denny O'Neill did with Snapper Carr. You know, he came on and said, yeah. this guy's a joke, so I'm going to have him betray the Justice League because he's bitter and... You know, so, yeah. you know, the, yeah, it's kind of kind of the same thing, but uh, yeah, that's that's a good point. I, you know, uh, I had never thought of that, but yeah, then Johnny would have been uh, uh, kind of sounds like something Brad Meltzer might do. So funny thing <laughs> that you mentioned that because I think like I think both of us independently read this story and got a kind of a weird like twinge of pre identity crisis mm-hmm. because the the retcon that Wizard attacked. Dinah and Larry through their daughter that he had such a personal attack. Really, when I yeah. read this, I was like, "Oh gosh, this is just like out of identity crisis. This is exactly that type of thing that Brad Meltzer would have got yeah. a hook on." Um, and it it, it does feel much darker and much more malevolent because it's such a personal attack that has such tragic consequences. Um, right. And the fact that he calls himself the greatest super criminal in the history of the planet. <laughs> okay. That maybe for a couple months in 1948, that was true. Uh, um, but I, I mean, I definitely think, I mean, this certainly, I don't think they ever, there was never really a fallout or anything dealt with this. I don't think they ever saw each other again, but this would make the wizard the absolute arch nemesis of Black Canary. Yeah, you think she she, would have went after him. If she had been allowed to remember this, if her mind hadn't been wiped, like, she would have tried, she would have gone after the wizard and tried to kill him. Yeah, yeah. He took her daughter away from them. 
Yeah. Like that's in terms of like putting somebody like that, that should have been as, as monumental as black Manta killing aqua baby. But we never got any resolution out of this. We never got any payoff because they just swept it under the rug. They dismissed it as soon as it happened. Yeah. Well, you know, as much as we laugh at, at wizards claim to be the greatest villain, he is the villain that got rid of the earth Two Superman for a year. Yep. In that uh, classic uh, story where Superman, Clark, and Lois get married on Earth 2, mm-hmm. he made Superman disappear <laughs> and forget he was Superman. He was just Clark Kent for a year. <laughs> so, you know, so it's kind of funny that they, I mean, we laugh at it in a way because of the way he's portrayed elsewhere, but mm-hmm. this guy really does have some cred under his belt. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I think, like, most people, like, when they think of, like, the villain team-ups, they think of the Legion of Doom, just because of the, the more of the pop culture references. But when right. you look at the, the first supervillain team up, that was him leading it. Wasn't it? Wasn't, didn't yep. he put together yep. the first, I believe so. The first injustice society. I, I think he did. Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure he was yeah, in on that. Yeah. Cause I think that was, so, yeah. that was right. That was a few issues right before black canary joined the justice society. Did you mention it? I think this is the first time really that, Johnny Thunder has ever come out as like the hero, like he just nails his evil. Yeah, game. yeah. I mean, he actually he actually takes out his his uh, his doppelganger with with one punch, and it's not the Thunderbolt that does it. The Thunderbolt's too busy. Tr- I mean, the evil Johnny's too busy trying to control the Thunderbolt, right. and he just pops him one. So yeah, I think this might be the only time he actually did something <laughs> besides saying "say you." <laughs> uh, uh, but you know, thing we've got to mention. You know, I know you already brought the synopsis, but but you think that you know, Dinah. I know Dinah didn't know Doctor Fate. He was off the team by the time she joined. Yeah. But you think she would have went to like Green Lantern or somebody and anybody said, "Hey, else. this just happened to the baby." Yeah. Anybody more powerful? Anybody with like yeah, anybody could have helped them out and come up right. with a better. I'm- a better plan. So, so the genie, the Thunderbolt whisks the child away to this Thunderbolt dimension and then unilaterally decides that they shouldn't remember this, that he should change, that he should alter their perception. That is, that is a lot of power and a lot of authority for the genie to have. Yeah. (laughs) For a being that doesn't seem to have much of a free will, or in in the like we said that his uh, the his allies refer to him as an it, and not really a, a, a sentient being in a way, right. he, he decides. You know, I'm just going to tell him the baby died, <laughs> make him yeah. believe it. It's yeah. <laughs> like, wow, that's better. That's better than your baby's safe, but it's asleep. You know, and exactly. and. and I, any other story because you know what happens if you say the baby is safe there but it's asleep then you can go that it's like putting someone in cryogenic stasis with the assumption that okay we're working on a cure yeah later on they can go and talk to dr fate or somebody and find out is there a way we can save her and bring her out so that we can still be parents uh i wonder i have no idea but i wonder if the story was at all in the mind years later in in X-Men or X... No, it would have been actually X-Factor when Cyclops and Jean Grey had to send their son into the future 
essentially oh, yeah. to save it from the techno virus and it eventually yeah. came back and became cable. Now mm. they didn't lose their memory of sending their child into the future because that created drama that they had to deal with. Which yeah. is good storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess I guess maybe Thomas's point is well they would have brought this up at some point if they remembered <laughs> yeah, he needed, this. Yeah, he needed a reason for them never to talk about this in the last 100 issues. But, you know, maybe that's a good, maybe that's a good clue that you shouldn't do it. You know, the, maybe this is just a place we shouldn't go, you know, because... <laughs> when Dinah, the adult Dinah, is dying, her husband yeah. has been killed, and she yeah. is dying of radiation poisoning, essentially. Yes. And she makes the decision... To have she she basically encourages Superman and was it Superman and the Spectre? Yeah, the, I believe so. To, yeah, to transfer her consciousness into her daughter, essentially overwriting her daughter's mind and any semblance of a soul that her daughter might have had, even if she had just been sleeping for the last twenty years or however however old she's supposed to be when she's grown up. It's if the if <laughs> I I don't want to get into like religious or metaphysical ideas about this, but it's hard not to. Yeah. Like, is she killing her own daughter and replacing her when she does this? Well, you know, here's my thing: is it is it Black Canary? Is it the senior Dinah that suggests this, or is it all Superman? Because it's kind of hard to tell where the word balloon's coming from. Maybe it is Canary because somebody, either Superman or Canary, says, wait a minute, it's crazy, I know, but maybe, just maybe, and then it says from the Thunderbolt, a hasty conference in, and then the Thunderbolt in the flashback says, yes, I think I can do what you suggest, Superman. Yeah. And then Superman says, then do it, please, and hurry. Dinah has only moments to, left to live. So did she suggest it or did Superman suggest it? Because if Superman suggested it, it's even worse. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's super dickery again. That's <laughs> However, the parallels between in JLA 74, after Larry has died, Superman carries her away. And she's yeah. grieving for Larry, but she gets over it quick because Superman carries her back to Earth 1. And in right. this issue, Superman carries her away. And this seems to be the unexplored like special power that nobody ever talks about that Superman has is that yeah. he can carry black canary to another plane of existence and all of her power, all of her problems are forgotten. Right. It, it goes along with that thing where he hypnotizes people with his, his super yeah. hypnotism through his glasses. So they yeah. think Clark Kent looks old and shriveled, you know, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's the earth. It's another forgotten earth one, Superman power. <laughs> yeah. But you know, Superman's essentially either way. He's involved with it. He's playing God again. Yeah. <laughs> He's saying, okay, the JSA can know, but I ain't telling the JLA. They, ain't got, they, they, they don't need to know this. Right. Right. <laughs> and, Which is Brad Meltzer again. This is like mind-wiping. <laughs> the mind-wiping that the, the Justice Seekers do on, on Batman. Right, I know. In Identity Crisis and all the if issues. They could, if they could have brought the child to... But then this goes back to the this goes back to the other question. It was like, I mean, there was nothing wrong. Uh, like the the child when it was originally when the spell was cast on it, it was still a living baby. 
Yeah. I got sent to this other dimension where it just went to sleep and never woke up. They basically induced a coma into this child to save themselves from the child's destructive power. And now we're just going to overwrite the child's mind with some of the memories of her mother. So when, when Dinah comes out of this, when Black Canary comes back to Earth One at the end of this story, biologically, it is the daughter. But whose mind is this? Whose soul is this? Is this a, would you call this a clone of herself? Or was it like, that's why the, the, the weird feelings and the, the, like retroactively thinking about, thinking about Larry Lance as her lost lover and her lost husband, that doesn't weird me out on the same way because I cannot tell if it is a daughter thinking about her father that way or a wife thinking about her father that way. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, if it's, if, if, if the daughter, but either, yeah, I get what you're saying, but either way at the moment she realizes, Oh my God, I wasn't his wife. I was his daughter. That alone would send her into therapy or Arkham Asylum <laughs> for decades. Yeah, I, I think I think we're missing about five pages of her like holding, like holding, covering her ears, just going no, 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 just like screaming and letting like just unexplicable sonic screams, just destroying the Thunderbolt dimension. Yeah, and killing everyone, including Superman. <laughs> She finally unleashes her full power. She goes all Phoenix on him. Yeah. <laughs> it just obliterates everybody, even the Spectre. <laughs> and you couldn't blame her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I get your, yeah, if she is not, the the daughter apparently, you know, of course she was an infant. I mean, if if they had brought the daughter to Earth One and said, well, you know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, help her and, you know, the specter says, well, I can, I can save her. I can make it to where she can, because obviously they bring her what, you know, here's a good, you know, what was it about it that made her coming to earth one, her able to control her powers? I mean, was it just putting the adult mind of the, her mother into the body that, that or the soul or whatever it is that, that made her able to control those powers? I mean, what was the magic fix that made this all okay now? Exactly, I, because I mean, if you wonder if it was if it was just time and experience, then you know Larry and Dinah could have moved to the Thunderbolt dimension to raise their child. I think they would have been okay with that. They were right. pretty much retired from fighting crime. Yeah. I think I mean it, it's sort of like it's sort of like you know, Jorel and Lara sending their child off to Earth. If they had more time, they could have built a bigger spaceship and all gone together. Right. That was kind of the plan. And in some versions, Jorel's like getting a rocket, you know, and Lara's like, no, no, I'm I'm not I'm staying here with you, which is awful. Yeah. You should go with your kid and tell your husband to beat it. You know, <laughs> but yeah, like, I mean we could we could put a more cynical modernist sort of spin on this and say that Johnny Thunder deliberately had the Thunderbolt wipe their memories because he didn't want to lose Dinah because he wanted to keep her around. And yeah. So that potentially maybe if she was grief stricken by the loss of her daughter, I mean, a lot of relationships don't survive that. So he could have thought that maybe 
she would have left Larry and he could have gotten around the rebound. I think that's what a more cynical modern writer would have approached this with. Right, right, yeah. But that's just me hating on Johnny Thunder because he's <laughs> that's low hanging fruit. He's such an easy target. Right. Yeah, he really is, yeah. Uh yeah. It's not a, I'll sort all this all out in time. Yeah. I kind of doubt it. <laughs> yeah. That's well, luckily you only have about two years before they just say, you know what? We're wiping this. Right. We're just going to make did, sure this didn't happen. So did I guess they ever address this again, really. I mean, but I, I know crisis is only two years away, but, and I know the black canary appeared in uh, the, the green arrow feature and, and detective around this time. Right. Uh, and I, it, covered, I covered those on the blog and I'm trying, the timeline is a little bit wonky in terms of when they were published. I think it was who's who that, that who's who entry in issue two of who's who. I think that was the first time it actually definitively said, this is one Dinah and this is her daughter and they are separate people. And they showed, that was the first time they ever showed her Jazzercise outfit or whatever. Yeah. Cause that didn't come out in the comics until a few months later. Right. It debuted in who's who. Yeah. I think, I think that was the first time where they definitively said these are two different people. Yeah. Because in the story, when she did get that new costume, which was Detective 554, which was that, there was a two-parter, and I don't remember if it was 553 and 554 or 554 and 555. I think it was 553 and 554. I could be wrong on that, but I think. Um, but there there was a whole issue where Dinah seemed to be having flashbacks about a case that her mother was involved with during the golden age about mm. this arsonist pyromaniac supervillain. Right. And it was really sort of ambiguous about whether these were a sort of reincarnation flashbacks that she was remembering something from her past life, or if this was sort of a, almost kind of an inherited genetic memory that she had picked up from her mother. I think at right. that point, at that point it was still a little bit hazy about whether or not she, she was her own separate person with some of her mother's memories or whether she was not. And then it was later right. on that they like closer to 1990, that would have been when the secret origins came out. That was, that was the definitive, the mark of demarcation where they're like, Nope, two different people. Right. Exactly. And, and, you know, they, they, uh, I think Roy Thomas somewhere in one of the all-star companions said he, when he did the last days of the JSA, he should have featured, uh, the original black canary in there because post crisis, she was a separate character person. And, mm-hmm. but really that's more, that. You know, nobody had done anything with that at that point, I don't think. So he wouldn't, I mean, until Alan, Alan Brennert wrote the story where Dinah Sr. is, is dying, yeah. uh, I don't think anybody thought that, oh, wait a minute, is she still alive or is she dead? Because here she's obviously dead, but of course, why is she dead if none of this really happened the way it happened? But uh, so it's just, you know, either way, you know, this is definitely one of those cases where the crisis really did come in handy here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, probably the reason Thomas did this and, and Conway, and, and since Thomas finished this up, you got to, by himself, you got to figure that maybe Conway wasn't as involved in this as, as Thomas. But I think he was just trying to address, okay, Dinah is too old. You know, she's, 
She's 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 much older than Green Arrow. Uh, you know, right. she she was a late Golden Age, but she was still an active Justice Society member. Um, you know, why is why does she not look like she's in her what would she have been in there? You know, in her fifties or whatever yeah. then. Well, yeah, because the, the Justice Society characters were allowed to age because of that. They were on a separate timeline. Right. And the Justice right. League characters had to be young and spry. So, yeah, that created that is that big gap between it was really between her and Ollie. Yeah. Is they, they wanted to kind of bring her back down so that it would, that would seem like a more age appropriate romance. Right. Right. Which of course, then later, then, my grill made him older. Right, exactly. Ollie. Then post crisis, then it's like, well, now it does seem like there's a 10 to 12 year difference between them with him being that much older. Right, because you know, if if like in it, you get the idea, and of course the 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 stories you've been covering, she was so young right. when she starts out, she can't even fit in her mother's costume, and then in like uh, the Justice League uh, origin and Secret Origins title, she's like, you know, it looks like she just put on the costume and she's like maybe eighteen or something, you know. So, yeah. uh, and then you know, like I said, Mike Grell's got Ollie in his forties, <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, yeah, you know, what's, what's really funny is, you know, that, that, uh, that bit with, uh, you know, thanks to Mar Marv Wolfman for suggesting the idea, uh, according to Thomas in All-Star Companion Volume 3, uh, Wolfman forswore any memory of the idea, and Wolfman said, it was probably just one of those fan things, which I told you, and then forgot it as soon as I said it. So what does that tell you? <laughs> I'm, tr I'm trying to think if that's if that's him just like really denying this, like just like looking at how this thing turned out. If he was just like, oh, oh, Roy, I was joking about this. Oh, you you really wrote this? You really went ahead and made. Ooh, okay, Roy. No, that was uh, yeah, I, I was kind of joking about. That. I was really drunk that night that I called him with this idea. <laughs> It was San Diego Comic Con. We were out late drinking, you know. Like, <laughs> you know, despite all the craziness, I, I do enjoy this story. But it, it, it's fun. It's engaging. The stuff with the other characters, the crime champions, which I don't think we mentioned, the crime champions are the exact uh, same villains that were in the very first JLA JSA team up because this is actually the 20th anniversary team up. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Way, to, way to celebrate. Uh, <laughs> but. But, you know, this was, I mean, it's fun, but it's so, just so bat crap crazy. I mean, there's just so many emotional, I don't even know if they're really logic holes. They're like, there's so many emotional holes in it that's just. No, I think it's, I think it was, I think it was Roy Thomas and to lesser extents, Jerry Conway and Marv Wolfman. I really think, I think they were drinking and they're like, how can we out Haney Bob Haney? <laughs> like what is the craziest most ridiculous thing that we can do that throws continuity to the wind and then actually have to reconcile this in continuity because that's our jobs because we're not writing this so the atom shrank down inside black canary's body and, and has been mobilizing her <laughs> ever since <laughs> she's really been dead all these years but here's this <laughs> kid over here we can <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a zany haney right there yeah. uh, but you're right these are these are really fun issues i i crack up at the story it's i yeah i can't i can't imagine a story like this being told at any other time no um like if it like 
if you tried to tell this story after the crisis or anything like this, it would have been laughed out of the room. You just, you couldn't, you couldn't try to reconcile this story. No. And any earlier, I don't know if the writing would have been sophisticated enough to, to do this high wire act of, of balancing a plot that is overly complicated. Yeah. Um, but also all of these emotional highs and lows that we go through. Yeah. And then the emotions that we skip over and the, the questions that are left unanswered. I mean, you know, I think if they, I think if this story had been followed up on, you know, in, in, you know, if Conway had taken this and run with it, with, you know, Canary suffering from a, a real identity crisis, <laughs> no Brad Meltzer, but a real identity crisis in Justice League after this, this wouldn't have stuck out as it did. But the, it's kind of like Mopey. The, you know, the, the dimensional imp that gave Barry Allen his powers in that one story. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're like, okay, we're never addressing this again. We're not going to write it out of continuity, but we're never addressing it again. Other than finally in Who's Who, they said this never happened. Yeah. You know, uh, they used the Who's Who entry to say no. But, you know, they never did that with this. Of course, like we said, in two years, it didn't matter. But they also didn't follow up on it. And I think if they had... Had Canary come back and just, you know, if she was just a, a, you know, a bitch for two years, you know, just because she couldn't deal with it and she was, you know, just upset and just traumatized, it, it would have made it less just crazy. It would, <laughs> it would have been the start of something rather than this odd, strange footnote that it's, it's just this kind of, it's just out there hanging on its own and it's, it, it, it it's kind of notorious. For, for that too, you know, it's like it, it's mm -hmm. amongst Justice League and Justice Society fans. It's kind of like, oh yeah, that one, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that did happen. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, random thought, just as I'm looking through this again, I really like the Ted Knight Starman, and I really like Our Man. Oh yeah, those Our are those are some great. of my favorite JSA members, and it's it's mostly just the aesthetics. I just like their designs. I like those costumes. Mm -hmm. There's something so simple about Our Man's look, and, yeah, and the way that Chuck Patton and Romeo Tengal draw him, he just looks perfect. Yeah, he, they kind of follow the way Perez drew him uh, in the JLA JSA team up like a, a few years before yep. in the yep. Secret Society one, and, and Perez kind of made his hood all black and the inside of it yellow because it never made. I never understood characters with yellow costumes that had dark shadows on them. But, okay. Uh, but but uh, he really made the Iron Man costume work. It's just a really, it's a very unique design. I mean, nobody else has a costume like that. And uh, Starman's costume is very much Superman's with with the, you know, kind of open cow thing. But the colors don't, they make it look so different that it doesn't matter. You know, it's... Uh, it's just, uh, they, they do have a great look. I, there's a reason that, uh, you know, they, when, when they would show a flashback to Ted in, uh, in the James Robinson Starman comic, you know, it was always a treat to see that, that costume. It's just a, yeah. it's just a sharp design. Yeah. Plus he's got the cosmic rod. <laughs> of course he does. Black Canary, Black Canary knows what's up because her men have cosmic rods and stick em shafts. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> hey, you know, in that one Brave and the Bold story, he gave her a mini cosmic rod that she kept in, was it her purse or something? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Which she you can, never gave that back. 
you can write all sorts <laughs> of stories about that if you want, but <laughs> they're probably slash fiction stories, but there you go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Chris, any last thoughts about these issues? Well, I think we've pretty much said it all. Bottom line is it's just crazy, and uh, but it's a lot of fun. And uh, they really don't make comics like this anymore. And, and I think we're all we're all worse off for it in a way, you know. <laughs> to, in most respects, yes, we are worse for not having more <laughs> stories like this. Um, there, the yeah, I'll I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I would like more stories like this today, up to a certain point. Up to a certain point, yeah. And, and in other ways, this is the type of stuff that that drives us nuts because it's, you know, it's retconning things and implanting things that, you know, that, uh, that kind of besmirch the stories that we, we liked. I wonder what old, really old justice league and justice society fans thought of this that read JLA 74 off the rack, what they thought of this sequel to it that filled in all these holes, you know, are they, are they griping about it? Like, a lot of people griped about Identity Crisis. Oh, I'm I mean, sure they, they were saying this. This wasn't my Justice League. My league had yeah. <laughs> my league had nine members, and Mike Sikowski was God, and that was it. Right, right. <laughs> You're probably right. Some things never change. Yeah. Okay. Well, Chris, thank you once again for being part of the show. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Well, uh, they can find me and my wife, Cindy. We host the Supermates podcast at supermatescomic.blogspot.com or on iTunes. And we talk about just whatever geeky t- uh, subject we that comes to our mind uh, at that time. It uh, drops uh, every two weeks, uh, thereabouts. And uh, I'm occasionally on the uh, Fire and Water podcast when uh, Rob and I do the Power Records podcast episodes where we talk about the... Uh, the comic and TV show uh, adventure records from the seventies there. And both of those are a lot of fun. I love listening to those power records episodes and I really do wholeheartedly endorse and enjoy the Supermates podcast. I just started it about, uh, about a month ago is when I started listening to it, but I'm having so much fun. I've caught up to about episode 10 in the back catalog, but I've listened to the last two, um, the more, the more recent ones. And it's such a fun show. I love the rapport that you have with Cindy. Um, it's a great show. All right. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Brian. That's all for this episode. If you enjoyed the show, you can leave a comment on the blogger page, blackcanaryfan.blogspot.com. There you can contact me with any questions or comments. You can also find me on Facebook and on Twitter using the handle at blackcanaryfan or at ryandaily01. You can also search the username Count Druncula. Flowers and Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And I make no money off this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Since my man left me, others can't be found.